Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a successful business, I've met directly or indirectly many successful people from entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes someone successful? Do we even know what success is? And the all important question, can we create it for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Barry Hearn is quite simply a legend in the world of sport. From taking snooker from his first club in Romford, Essex, to one of the most popular sports on television, representing the likes of Steve Davis, Dennis Taylor, Cliff Thorburn and Ronnie O'Sullivan, all of them world champions along the way, Barry then turned his hand to boxing. It started with the promotion of the Frank Bruno-Joe Bugner fight, and of course we know the rest. In fact, with the help of his son Eddie and his daughter Katie, the matchroom sports business has become so successful it continues to break new ground, revolutionising sports like darts, temping bowling, pool, golf, table tennis, poker and even fishing. Barry is of course a household name known for his incredible self-made success, so I'm thrilled he could join us to share his undoubted wisdom with us today. Barry, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. First question. My observation of you, Barry, from the time I've known you, is that you are a, you have a relentless work ethic, but also, if I may say, a really infectious enthusiasm for what you do. Mm. I think you, you can't kid people with enthusiasm. You know, bullshit is great, but sooner or later, there's got to be the reality of something truthful about it. Passion is something that either exists or doesn't exist. And one of the reasons why I think Matchroom Sport's been so successful over the years is we've had this rule that if we don't like the sport, if we don't love the sport, if we're not passionate about it, we won't do an event in that sport. Because creating events is a sort of... It's your own personality coming through an event, and that personality's got to be driven by passion. So, for example, I don't particularly like motorsport, and I don't particularly like tennis. So irrespective of how much money or what opportunities out there, we will not do events in that sport. Uh, I do like fishing and temping bowling, and these are quite small events, but we promote those with passion. Our job is not about going to work. Our job is just about living the dream at different levels, and it's so much easier if you're happy and you love what you do, and that's why my work ethic is so relentless, because I don't consider it work. Very interesting. So, you, you know, let's be honest, Barry, you could have decided a long time ago, enough's enough, I've made money, I've mm. been successful. Um, what, what keeps you going? Is it, is it that passion? Is it something more yeah, than I that? Yeah, I think I was, prob- I was a failed sportsman at everything, and I was passionate when I was young. I mean, when I grew up wanting to be heavyweight champion of the world, and it was a disaster when I found out I was absolutely shit at boxing. I loved it, but I wasn't any good at it. I found something that I was quite good at, which was the promotional logistics, the stuff that people might think is boring, but that came as a replacement to being actually actively involved. So whereas I was, you know, relations are yours, running marathons around the world and things like that, and I was doing okay, I was never going to win. Now what I like to do is I like to win. I'm very competitive as a person, you know. If I'm playing golf with my son, I will kill him rather than lose, you know. I mean... (laughs) 
Eddie was the last guy I went in a boxing ring with and he was 16, I was, I think I was 48. And it was a proper fight because we're both very competitive people. Um, so when you look at why do you carry on working is, one is what's the alternative? I'm not a sit at home, do the garden type of bloke. I like a round of golf, but I don't want to play every day. I like to win. So I'd like to create a business with this year we have 656 event days. People say to me, do you go to all of them? I say, are you mad? I mean, this is a global business, which has been very successful, far more so than I ever thought it would be. But every event is just the same as any sport. You play to win. And being a chartered accountant and being the fact that I can judge winning through balance sheet and profit and loss accounts... That keeps my interest because mm. every year I want to beat last year. Every year I want to be better. And actually, it's only the same as a, a young fighter or a young golfer. I want to get better. And I want to get better all the time. So I always tell people I make dozens of mistakes, but I make thousands of decisions. And I am improving with age. So I'm, I'm really interested in a couple of things you just said. First of all, I know Eddie and Katie, your son and daughter, uh, work with you in the mm. business. Do you think Eddie's inherited that, inherited? Has he inherited that, that yeah. competitiveness from you? Is yeah. Katie the same? Yeah, I mean, as a family. I mean, we're currently on a family weight loss. I, I chart everything on a spreadsheet every Monday. And it's me and my wife, Eddie and his wife, Katie and her husband. And it's brutal. You know, everything's written down. Everyone is desperate to find out what the other one's doing. This is a mindset. It's a lifestyle, you know. It's in your DNA. I mean, Eddie has got much... Uh, I had a group of some of my directors the other day and we were, the discussion was how much street have you got in you? If you understand street in the concept of sort of really basic working-class common sense, which if you mix it with enough drive and ambition can be what's the difference between being super successful and just surviving. And I looked at all my directors and some of them I said, you've got zero street. That's okay. There's a job there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eddie has got a hundred percent street that I've got is we would never walk past a pound note on the floor. Just couldn't do it. It doesn't matter if we've got zillions, just couldn't do it. We would never pass on an opportunity to push ourselves further. We would never say no to a different job if we had the passion for it and the enjoyment for it. We don't look at the clock. We don't look at weekends. We understand the wife and children have got to understand this is the same level of commitment we make to our business as the very top-end sportsman would make to his sport. You know, no one criticised Jack Nicholas for hitting a 1,000 golf balls every day before breakfast. No one criticised Anthony Joshua from living the most structured, scheduled life because they're aiming to be the best. And although we're not in the arena, outside the arena, we're aiming to be the best as well. Would you say that you've lived any part of it? I know you have a passion for sport. You've Mm. already explained that. Um, Going back to your reaction when Steve Davis, who you looked after for many years, won his first world championship, do you live your life through sport, through the people you represent? Totally. It's interesting, obviously, Steve was the first one and the most important of all because he was the breakthrough moment for me. You know, I mean, this school, tall, skinny kid turns up who can't talk and wants to play in a snooker competition I was organising in the 70s and he became not only my best friend but the greatest snooker player of all time and a, a wonderful ambassador. But 
uh, whilst I took a percentage of his earnings, which was nice when I was poor, the percentage I took of his adrenaline was much more important. And even today, I mean, Anthony Joshua has just signed a new three-year deal with us, which is great, and we love him. He's just the most terrific person. And Anthony will always pull my leg about, oh, you're going to make a lot of money out of me, which is true, totally true, and business is business. I said, Anthony, what I really want is 1% of your adrenaline. That's what I can't buy. I can buy anything I want, and I don't need anything. I don't want anything. But I can't buy adrenaline. And actually walking to the ring or sitting at ringside or being in the crucible with Steve Davis gives me memories that I go to bed thinking about. I don't go to bed thinking so much about the profit and loss accounts because that's a job done. I go to bed thinking of uh, the winning goal against Oxford when Leighton Oren got promotion. Mm. You know, the Steve Davis black ball, you know, the Anthony Joshua Klitschko, the Nigel Ben Chris Eubank. I mean, the memories are flooding in and there are thousands and thousands of them. But the excitement that goes through your body when you're involved in something spectacular can't be purchased. And that's what drives you on. So it's a chain reaction from wanting to be the best. You've got to create the most opportunity for people. You're, you've got to service your clients. You've got to make sure everyone from your bank manager to your wife is happy. You've got to balance all that mixture in. Then you've got to be totally selfish and say, I've got to look after myself first. And then you create something which you think, you look back on, you go, wow, I can't believe I did that. And I looked at it with the Joshua Klitschko fight at Wembley, for example. I looked at Eddie, I went, I can't believe you've done this. Or the frotch grows. Mm. You know? And he looks at me and he went, yeah, but you did Bruno Bugner in 87, 86, 87. I went, yeah, I know, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I only got 33,000. You've got 90. So we have that competitive nature all the way through, trying to be the best, striving to be that bit better, giving people more value. And, and at the same time, making a profit. You know, there's, you can't be just a traditionalist purist in today's world and say, we're doing it for the love of the game. Are we? Yeah, of course we are. But we're also doing it as a business. And it's a proper business. It employs a lot of people. It's changed people's lives. And it's given us moments that we'll never forget. Bruno Bugner was your first big, big, one. Yeah. big gig, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Where, how do you spot an opportunity? Because, I mean, boxing <sighs> wasn't... No. I mean, you, you transformed that sport. No. Like you've transformed so many. How it was so weird because you don't want to be religious on podcasts too much, but it's almost like God looks down and throws you something. And I think, you see, everybody in the world is different. Every single person is different. And that follows that every single person is better at something than something else. The sadness is a lot of them don't find out what it is or when they see the opportunity, they don't take it. So I was a bright chartered accountant with an easy career of making sensible money and might have been a bit dull, but nevertheless, you know, I didn't need to have that. I liked boxing. I, was, I started fighting when I was 27, 28, and I was useless and packed up couple of years later before I got completely smashed to bits, but I still sparred and still used it as fitness and I enjoyed it. And I did a couple of, Terry Lawless, who was looking after Frank Bruno said to me, you know, you're a good snooker promoter. You should be doing some boxing. 
And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I did a couple of small shows with Gary Mason and I got the bug. And then I naturally, in my nature, I think, how can I be bigger? And I thought, I thought as a fight fan, and I, and I look at most businesses as, because customer experience is so important, is what would I want? You know, I like to laughingly refer to myself as king of the working class because as my wife tells me, no matter how many millions I've got, I'll always be working class. And I take that as a compliment. Yeah. So I look at it, well, how can I improve things? How can I, you know, and boxing, you looked at those boxing in those days, the fights were terrible. There was no monetization, no commercial. No one was making any money and it wasn't doing particularly anything. And I thought, what, what would I want to see? Well, I would like to see Frank Bruno against Joe Bugner. I mean, again, it's a sort of statement of what type of life you lead is, do you commit or do you not commit? Do you talk about things or do you do things? And my, my methodology, if you like, is always go for it. I had nothing particularly to lose and I had an awful lot to gain, I think. And I was sitting in a Chinese restaurant in South End on Sea with my wife, my biggest critic. <laughs> and she said, what are, you gonna, what are you doing with your life? And I said, I'm thinking I might do a big fight. And she said, and I told her, so well, what have you done about it? I said, well, I, I'm working on it. Well, she said, that means you've done nothing. I said, well, I've got Joe Bugner's phone number. She said, and so? And I said, well, well, sod you. And I got off from the table. I went to the reception at the Chinese restaurant and I said, can I use your phone? She thought I was phoning a taxi. I phoned Melbourne. Got through squeaky voice Bugner who said he wanted a load of money. I said, I'll give you 250 grand. And he asked me, what plane do you want me on? So I knew I had him the following night. Trevor Burbick pulled out of his fight with Frank Bruno with a back injury. I saw the opportunity. I phoned Terry Lawless and said, get Bruno around your house. I'll be around at 10 o'clock. I said, do you want to fight? He went, I'm fit, I'm ready to fight. I said, fight Bugner. Here's a contract, I'll give you £350,000. He signed it straight away. And the fight just happened. It evolved, but it only happened because I got off my arse and did something about it. Because so many people talk. I'm, I'm tired of people making excuses. There's no need to make excuses. You do something about it. As long as you do something, if you fail, it's not a failure. Because you did something. A couple of very interesting things you've said, Barry. When you said you didn't really have anything to lose, does your perspective of, of well, risk no. change when you've got more to lose? I think initially, yeah, you're definitely right. I think your perception of life and business changes as you get older, never mind about what you've got to lose. But there's certainly an argument to say is why people start boxing, for example, is... I came from a very poor area. My father was a bus driver. He died when he was 44. My mother cleaned houses. You know, I had a touch. I had a luck. Lucky strike. I managed to get articled as a chartered accountant. From my background, that was very unusual in those days. Mm. But I got lucky. And my life has been sort of programmed by a series of lucky breaks. But a fan of mine would say, yeah, but they were breaks you took advantage of, and that's true. But I nevertheless got the lucky break, the lucky break to become a child accountant. My work ethic saw me through because I just memorised every single line of every single book. You know, when you don't have a life for three years, you can do that, don't you? Mm. Well, um, but my instinct has always been, I want to be rich. You know, I came from a working class, a very working class area where people look down your nose at you. And I wasn't envious. I just wanted what they had. And I thought, 
I'm not the smartest kid on the block, but I can work harder than anyone else out there. I am relentless. There are 24 hours a day. I'd, I will work all of them if I have to achieve an objective. I've always had that. And, and certainly when you first start off, you say, what have I got to lose? What's the worst thing that can happen to me? I mean, Matchroom had a bad period in the sort of late 80s. We was touch and go to go bust. I was investing everything, everything into what I thought was the future of sport, which was satellite and cable, and it hadn't come in. But I knew they would need programming, so I was creating events ready, and I was probably two years ahead of my time. But even during that bad two years or two and a half years, I kept asking myself, what have I got to lose? You know, I owe the banks millions of pounds, I'm losing millions of pounds. Fortunately, I'd made millions of pounds earlier, but that was all gone. And I thought, I'm a chartered accountant, I can go back to accountancy. What have I got to lose? What's my upside, what's my downside? Every single thing, even today, that's the first thing I think of. What's my upside, what's my downside? My job, if I'm good at it, I can limit my downside and with my imagination, I can take my upside to different levels that anybody else can. And that's been my strength. But it is, what have you got to lose? As you get older and you come into a world where, yeah, you've done well. I mean, I've done super well from what I imagined was possible. I'm risk aversive, totally risk aversive. I'm good enough in my business to say my downside upside is working right. Um, Used to be in the event business, the first year of a new event, new sport, you, you lose a lot of money. Second year, break even. Third year, you make money. That's the standard. I make money first year. That's because I'm the best in the world of what I do. It's not, it's not bragging, it's just natural. I'm, I know what I'm good at. Now you have got some stats to back that one up, really. Yeah, I think so, more or less. I mean, I think kids today that I talk to follow that principle of, you know, you give it 100%. Uh, and, and what have I got to lose principle is a good principle because what you've got to lose is you could just be ordinary. And there's nothing wrong with that either. There's millions and millions of people that live an ordinary life and they enjoy themselves. I know because they're my customers and I try and give them events that put a little bit of Starlight Express into their world. But from our, from the entrepreneurial side, what have I got to lose is key. And as you get older, the whole attitude of your life changes. It's a bit like getting on a plane when they say, if we lose cabin pressure, the air mask will drop in front of you. The first person that you have to look after is yourself. Because if you don't look after yourself, how can you possibly help anyone else? And that's the air mask philosophy. So in my life, my air mask was looking after myself for the first 10, 15 years. Perhaps you're not a very nice person. You know, perhaps you are so dedicated that it really pisses everybody off around you. Guilty, mm. move on. Because the second half is you look after your family because you can afford to and because you want to see the benefits of your labour used to those closest and nearest and dearest. And then the third part of your life, possibly the third part, is you look after the wider community. And that's something that you feel you can make a contribution back for what the good Lord has given you in your life. And it's not being terribly religious, it's just being fair. There is a fourth stage a stage that people like me will never see but people like say uh, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett will say their fourth stage is global not just local community uh, and they'll do things beyond most people's imagination because they can afford to do it because what did someone say 
we're all at the end of the day we all end up in the same size box so make sure you're having fun and but take a step back occasionally and say and, and what's the fruits of this labor going to be used for you uh, we've known each other a little while you strike me and i know you are well known for being a bit of a tough cookie mm. um but i know you've got you you refer to yourself sometimes as a bit of a dinosaur i think that's probably being a bit unfair but i think we can interpret that as you do have some real old-fashioned beliefs, you know, punctuality, being oh, yeah. straight with people, honesty. They're obviously really important to yeah. your business, aren't it's they? It's interesting because I just... Last Christmas, I sort of say... I have these moments of... I don't know, I'm not the deepest individual, but I have these moments of... I write things down. And I wrote 12 lessons for my grandchildren, who are eight, six, and two, a pair of twins of two. Totally something they wouldn't even understand today, but... I had the 12 lessons put in a little frame and I hung it in their bedrooms. And I said, just read it all the time. You won't understand it yet, but later on, post-granddad, you'll, you'll see it. And th those basic fundamentals of tell the truth. I haven't told the truth my whole life because I couldn't afford to tell the truth. Now I have the luxury of being able to tell the truth. And I love it. I love it. I love the transparency. I love the, I love the look on the other people's face. You tell people the truth. Your handshake is better than any contract. If I give my word something, that happens. Whether it costs me money, it doesn't cost me money. Whether it gives me grief, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. That's a fundamental belief of our family. Family comes first. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. You know, you've done your work. If you've done your work properly, you're in a position. And then, as I say, look at other people. But this doesn't make you an angel. It just gives you the basic, you work hard you make on the 12 things for my grandchildren you make a profit you know it's not nasty or rude to talk about profits profits give sustainability they give guarantees they give employment mm. they give reward and they also look after you because you put the effort in so there's some basic principles that remain the same my dinosaur theory is just the fact that the world is changing so fast and i'm surrounded by so many terrifically creative people. I feel like a dinosaur. I am trying desperately to learn every second. William Gladstone said on his deathbed, I have been a learner all my life. And I think I follow the same principle. Mm. I'm trying to keep involved. I'm 70. I don't intend to stop, you know. Ideally, I'd like to throw six consecutive sevens at a Las Vegas casino and go out in an explosion. That would be the ideal way of going. I don't want to slip down a slide so i've got to make sure i'm on the ball and being by me saying i'm a dinosaur what it's really saying in i'm a dinosaur but i'm prepared to learn mm. and most dinosaurs are not your wife plays a very important part in your life married mm. 48 mm. years that is mm. that is some going particularly in the in the modern world yeah. how important <laughs> or how do you keep a how do you keep a good marriage going like that i have no idea how she puts up with me that's a, i think my wife is one thing Again, you go back to those working-class basics. Uh, my dad never opened his wage packet. He never had a bank account because it was irrelevant. Every penny that came in got given to the wife and she organised everything. So I always remember my grandfather when he was retiring, he was an oil tanker driver. And about six months before he was retired, I remember being around his house and he's saying, I don't know how I'm going to survive on a pension. And my grandmother said, well, we've always got our savings. And he said, what savings? He was 64 and she'd saved up. 
Do you know, I've always put a few pound away. He had no idea. And she'd saved up seven or eight thousand pounds, which in those days was quite a lot of money. They bought a bungalow and he, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. I think women are the rock of working class society and they're the ones that keep us under control. I am, as a person, I'm not fearful of any person in this world, irrespective. I'm absolutely shit myself with my wife. <laughs> she is, a, a glance across a room is like a laser beam. And she keeps us under control. Sunday lunch as a family, every Sunday, without fail, the entire family sits around for Sunday lunch. If we're in the country, that's the only excuse you haven't got. If we discuss business at Sunday lunch, it was difficult not to because we're all involved, Katie's is involved and Eddie as well. My wife will say one more sentence and your dinner is in the dog. So it won't tolerate. She's a fearful woman fearful woman and needs to be when she's dealing with the personalities that we have. Someone needs to control us and, and she does that job. So with my wife, she's, you know, she's a very well-known sort of stud owner. She breeds races, racehorses and she loves it and she has her own interests as well, which I think is fundamental to a long marriage. Mm. Um, we don't see each other every day. That's also fundamental to long marriage. So, so far, well... I think I might as well keep her now. She's done 48 years. <laughs> so I know um, one of the other things that are that's very important to you, you love fishing, don't you? Mm, yeah. Um, today we're, we're having a conversation in your beautiful place in Essex, uh, and I know you've built your own fishing lake. And um, what other things about you might we not know, Barry? I think the fishing has made, actually has made me more money than anything else in the world simply because it's the only time I really relax. I mean, I, I find it very difficult to relax. Um, my mind's always working. I love numbers. I love creating things. And that's not conducive to easy nights or early nights sleeping. So I fish. Um, I fish all over the world. Mostly I enjoy. I have a little small lake in my house uh, at my, the stud farm I live at. Mm. And I just built a little cabin there. It's not quite as small as I thought it was going to be. So it's got a couple of bedrooms and a loft and a lounge and a huge sky TV. And I stay overnight down there and I take a notepad, I put the rods out, make a cup of tea and I think of things and I just jot down notes. And when I finish in the morning, I usually start about five o'clock and I finish about 10 o'clock the following morning, wake up at half past five for a cooked breakfast, proper. It's a proper night. Catch a few fish, doesn't really matter if you don't. I come back, I feel reborn. And I've also got this page of notes and I think, you know, hmm. Premier League darts was invented around my lake. I thought we should, you know, we should do something like that. Fishermania was invented around a fishing lake in Ockenden. Mm. Just sitting there thinking, why isn't fishing on TV? So many people do it. You know, stuff like that. Or you think of people, you know, this guy's good, he should be looked after, he's, you know, he has a career. This person's not delivering. Or, you know, this customer's not paying. Mm. And actually, I find it very therapeutic. So, I mean, it's not that I'm a great fisherman. I think there are some fabulous fishermen out there. I'm an I like most things. I'm a bloody good amateur, you know. And I was a three-hour, 20-marathon man. Never going to win, but you know what? That's not a bad time for an old fat geezer. It just shows you. That's also part of your relentless approach to get better. See, marathons are great for you because... It's just about hard work to get to a certain standard. You have to have ability to get to super standard. Yeah. But we can all make ourselves better in everything we do by trying harder. 
And that's that's not rocket strikes science. Me we've got quite a lot in common then. London marathons, family yeah. Yeah. philosophy about yeah, different yeah. things. Goodness. Well, when you get down to thought. it, most of it is common sense. I mean, politically, it always drives me mad how devoid of common sense most of our politicians are. You know, you get uh, you you get more frustrated with them because you think there's so many things out there we should be doing uh, and we don't, and and that's not that's not that's not right. You know, whether it's social, I'm not. Politically motivated, either way. I mean, my politics would probably be to the right, if anything, but with a strong social conscience, you know. Yeah. And I think that's the balance that's missing. You uh, talked earlier, Barry, about uh, the the challenges you faced at Matchroom. Mm. Um, you also suffered a heart attack, didn't you, mm. some years ago? Obviously, did that change your perspective of life? Do you see? See the world differently no, not today really. than you did before? No, I don't think so. I mean, my father had five or six heart attacks before he died. And I think, and in fact, his father died at 43 and his father died at 44. So I was the first guy for four generations to get past 44, which I thought was pretty good, you know. <laughs> um, but at the same time, if it's hereditary, you always know you're going to have a problem to deal with. So it didn't come as a great shock. I mean, I was not, not I was fit, quite fit all the time anyway, but it didn't come as a great shock. Uh, came as more of a shock to the fact that my wife wouldn't dial 999 for the ambulance at four o'clock in the morning because she said to me, no, 999 is only for emergencies. <laughs> and I thought, what is this? And, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't dial. She, you know, she said the great words and, and I was in a lot of pain. She said, let's give it 20 minutes and see how you are. I mean, this is frightening, it's frightening stuff. But looking back on it, she woke Ed, Eddie up at four o'clock in the morning to say, "You've, I can't make the phone. Call. You've got to make the phone call." He phoned the ambulance, not my wife. So there you go. We're still together. Um, did it? It didn't refocus because my father never taught me anything in my life, particularly because he wasn't that active. My mother was my driving force. She was the one that taught me how to fight. Um, she did that by sending me to elocution lessons when I was eleven, and the other kids taught me how to fight because kids can be very cruel. From where we came from, elocution lessons weren't really the thing to do. And she put me in the drama society and the poetry reading society because she always wanted me to be better. And she and to, she thought that would make me better, you know, as a person. Oh, maybe she was right. But my dad only told me one thing because of his medical condition. He only ever said to me, don't... The only advice he ever gave me is don't waste... Don't waste a moment of your life. And that's the best advice I've ever had. Mm. So the fact that I had a heart attack... I don't think it was that major. I had an operation, everything's done, and it hasn't affected me. If anything, I know it sounds banal to say, I quite enjoyed the experience because it was another little challenge, wasn't it? What do you do? When my father had his first heart attack, they said, sit in that chair for three months and don't move. That was the medical treatment in those days. Mm. Uh, and he never moved. On the subject of family <laughs> then, Barry, um, briefly... You know, you are a super successful guy, and if you don't mind me saying, I love your your approach to family life, the Sunday mm. lunches, mm. and so on. Eddie and Katie, you know, come into a world that you know is partially there mm. for them. Yeah, of course. How difficult? Because a lot of people listening to this podcast will be parents, mm. and I know as a parent myself how difficult it is to treat your kids differently to everybody else, or not as the case may be. How do you approach? that with, with Eddie, because they, they are successful yeah. in their own right, aren't they? Yeah, but you don't know that. You see, you approach with love, don't you? I mean, basically, every parent wants the best for their kids. That's natural. It's a natural feeling. 
So we tend to spoil them. I mean, and the richer you get, the more you spoil them. And, and, and everyone says, oh, you're creating a monster there. Not true. If you can install some basics into them, you know, thoughts, and, and spend time talking to them about life, the penny drops, you know, and, and you find out, it's in your DNA, you find out what you've got. I mean, with Eddie, he went to a private school. I, I never liked kids from private school because I think I felt secondary to them. So in my football career against private schools, I never heard the whistle for the 90th minute. I'd been sent off every game because <laughs> someone would say something in a posh voice and I would whack them. And that was the end of it. So I had that chip on my shoulder, which I hope has been removed. Um, but I was concerned that my son was live, being brought up in a different world to me. And I, didn't, I wanted to know what type of person he was. And we went down the gymnasium in Romford when, I, when he was 16 and we had a proper fight. And he dropped me twice in the second round and I left the gym the happier of the two. Because I realised, you haven't got to worry about this. He's got basic principles of family, he's got basic principles, the fact that you can change your life. You educate them through your own experience. And if they're worth the salt, and 99.9% of them are, they will be fine. Uh, my grandchildren at the moment, I think, are terribly spoiled. But that gives me so much pleasure to be able to spoil them. And at the same time, it incentivizes me to spend time with them and to say, let me tell you about life. You know, tell them old stories, bore them, bore them shitless, if you like, about, you know, we were so poor and, you know, they'll take it in. But I think it's in you, you know, if they, they live in an environment of seeing people grafting, just basic grafting, the fact that it brings in £100 or £100 million, the, the kids can't anticipate that yet. But you can bring them up the right way. And I, and I think in my cases, both my kids were privately educated, both of them, well, Eddie never went to university because no one would have him. Uh, he, <laughs> Got slung out of school when he was 16. That was the end of that. But he's turned out to be a good bloke. He's turned, out to be a nice, yeah. he's, you know, he's, he's turned out to be a nice fella. And, and, uh, and driven as well, despite the fact that he could have just sat on his backside and stuck stuff up his nose and gambled and drunk or whatever. But that would have been a failure of mine, not a failure of his. I love your philosophies. Um, final question. We asked this question to everyone. And uh, I think you can confirm none of this is pre-prepared, which makes it so fascinating, particularly for me. Um, let's now imagine you're a 70-year-old guy, but you've got a 15-year-old Barry Hearn sat on your knee mm. just before he goes off into the big wide world, possibly younger than 15 mm. if he sat on your knee. But um, you have the opportunity, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, to give mm. this young person mm. some advice. Based on all the things that you've learned over your life and your career and how varied it is, what piece of advice would you give to Barry Hearn Jr., mm. knowing all that you know? Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it takes 30 hours, not 30 seconds. But a summarise would be to say, when you wake up every morning, you've got to be excited. You've got to be excited of what the day will bring. You've got to be challenged because you want to feel that you've won something, not been given something. And then you want to count the reward and you want to go to bed feeling satisfied with your day's work. And that might be late, it might be early. That's your call. And you'll find out about yourself more than anyone else can tell you about yourself. So just look in the mirror and don't tell lies to anybody, but especially don't tell lies to yourself. Beautifully put. I've been looking forward to this for, for many weeks, Barry, and, and now over the last 13 minutes or so, I know why. So... 
Barry Hearn, um, absolutely no doubt in my mind we'll be con- we're going to be asked by lots and lots and lots of people to hear from you again because mm. there's so much more we can talk about. Um, but in the time we spent today, on behalf of everyone listening, thank you so much. Been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for coming. That was the Sandro Forte podcast and what an amazing guest Barry Hearn was. Remember, there are many more fantastic guests joining me over the coming weeks, so please make sure you subscribe if you want to pick up some great tips on success. Remember, of course, you can follow us on social media at Sandro's Podcast, that's Sandro's with an S, same on all channels. And I'd love to hear your stories, your ideas, anecdotes, challenges, or what motivates you. So please email me, hello at sandrospodcast.com. And please, if you can, leave a review on iTunes so we know what you'd like more of in the future. Speak to you next week. (laughs) 